Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. True crime lovers are always looking for new and engaging content. The Already Gone podcast covers stories from Michigan and the Great Lakes region. Cases you haven't heard before, like the Mayo Hunters or the murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello, plus better-known cases like the death of Jane Bashara and Illinois' own Lori Dan. Already Gone started in 2016, so there is a big back catalog for you to enjoy. Find Already Gone on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or your favorite podcatcher. Hello and welcome to a very special PGA Merchandise Show edition of the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak, and this week my very special guest is John K. Solheim, the president of Ping Golf. I had a chance to chat with John at Ping's world headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona a few weeks ago, and as you're about to hear, we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about what it's like to be the third generation in the Solheim family to be running Ping Golf. We talked about what it was like back in the day to be hanging out with his legendary grandfather, Karsten Solheim. And I talked to John about designing golf clubs and then running Ping Japan. Then finally, what it was like to come back to the United States and be named president of Ping. We also talked about the USGA and the RNA's distance reports, which are expected to be coming out very soon now. It was a very fun conversation. I had a good time with it, and I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. I'd like to welcome to the Four Press Podcast, John K. Solheim. John is the president of Ping Golf, and uh, welcome, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Wake up. Come on. That coffee's <laughs> got to kick in. It's, it's, this, is, this is real entertainment here for people. So uh, we're here in Phoenix. We're in the, one, one of the, a boardroom. Do, is there a name for this boardroom here at the Ping headquarters? Uh, I would say we call it a conference room, and we do not have an official boardroom. But, have... but we're working on that. Boardrooms are cool. I mean, if you get that nice long table... Maybe, you know, the, the beverage station at the end, the, the pretty view. You've got lots of pretty views yeah. here in Phoenix. You could have a good boardroom situation here. Yeah, we spend all our money on better drivers but and don't have a great boardroom. But we're working on that. Well, that's something, Try to get both. something to work on. So um, how's business been? This is We're coming to the end of your third year as the president. I think it was the beginning of 2017, if I'm not mistaken. So 17, 18, 19 is three. How's, how's business right. going? yeah. Uh, this has been a good year for us, so yeah, I'm, uh, I don't know, I don't want to brag too much and ring too many alarms, uh, but we're at Ping's having a good year, having a, a good year around the world, so it's been nice to see, um, you know, in the past we've kind of seen pockets of success here and there, but mm-hmm. we've kind of got 
running on all cylinders around the world. How challenging is it to to have all things running all around the world, to have everything sort of clicking from from a business standpoint? Um, and we're going to get into some of your background and what it takes, but there's different markets out there. The American market, you're obviously very aware and, and up to speed with the Japan market, the European market. There's lots of different things that are out there, and they don't always want the exact same thing at the same time, do they? Uh, no, that's truly the case. And yeah, I would say for a long time, we've uh, had good success in the U U.S., great success in Europe, not so much in Asia. Uh, and just in recent years, we've started to have a lot more success in Asia. So how hard now that we're actually kind of getting there, um, it seems actually to to work in sync together or whatever isn't mm -hmm. like uh, you have to master all these different skills definitely does put some uh challenges on the uh, supply chain and just the manufacturing in the past we've always been able to move production from one location to the other mm -hmm. uh just to help out if someone's you know having a really hot year this year everybody had a good year good um so it was just hard to find you know where to build those golf clubs and where to get those golf clubs. Gotcha. Well, I want to go back a little bit because your background in this business is actually very unique within the world of golf. Your grandfather, Carson Solheim, founded this company. Um, your father ran this company. And now, as I sort of said, this is the end of the third year with you as, as the president. Was there ever a time when you were growing up when you sort of didn't think this is going to be what you were going to do? Was there ever a period where like, you know what, I like engineering, but I'm going to make bicycles? <laughs> or I'm going to do something else? Or was it sort of predestined that um, you were going to be in the family business? I would say most all the time, this is what I wanted to do. Brief mm -hmm. moment when I was graduating with my engineering degree, uh, Boeing was coming in, hiring and doing interviews. And, and I thought about That'd be potentially exciting. doing airplanes. But uh, kind of golf sounded more exciting in the long run. Did you grow up playing? Uh, I did. Yeah, kind of on and off. Uh, mm -hmm get real passionate about it, was a decent junior player, and mm -hmm. then uh, kind of would burn out pretty often as well, too, and take a year off and then get Fall the back in love again. with it. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, what, tell, tell me a little bit about what golf was like around the house with you guys, because a lot of people try and keep their vocation and their avocation separate, but with your family, and I found with a lot of people in the world of golf, it it becomes your job. It becomes something that is always around. It's always on TV. Was, was golf around your house, or did your parents actively sort of try and separate family from golf, which happened to be the business? No, I mean, so golf was always there. We, we did vacations around, you know, work trips with my dad or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, there was always some golf tournament going on or accounts to visit or distributors to see. Mm -hmm. uh, so golf was already, always there. I would say a little different. We weren't one of these, like, superstar golf families where they play a lot of golf. Uh, we definitely played golf as a family, mm -hmm. like growing up, but, you know, none of us really reached that super high caliber of golfer. And, you know, there's a lot of these families out there that just seem to turn out really good golfers. So we weren't that case, but we were definitely, you know, into the business side of it, um, played a decent amount of recreational golf growing up with, with the family. And then, uh, you know, watched a lot of tournaments and stuff on TV on the weekends. What was your sort of first official job with Ping? Uh, so... Well, I don't know if you'd call it official, but when I was in high school, I would come in like in the summers as an mm -hmm. intern. So the first job I did doing that, I actually spent on a computer kind of back in the 2D CAD days. Mm -hmm. And so we were going from, we had all paper drawings to actually putting them into the computer. So I was just taking paper drawings for mostly equipment that we used to build golf clubs yep. and drawing those into the computer so we'd have them. 
So, so you were taking way. archival stuff, not things that yeah, were... Yeah, now right. those archives I created are totally obsolete. And I, don't, I don't even <laughs> think we could open those files if we tried anymore, so... It's just a, another summer well spent by, you know, John yeah. Solheim. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> it, did it seem like tedious work at the time, or because you, you liked that kind of stuff, and maybe that's how your brain liked you, it was something that appealed to you? Uh, I liked the CAD stuff. I liked learning how to do the CAD stuff. So a lot of it was was you know just copying stuff but then mm. i did do take some time and like draw up some putters mm. uh, 3d was just coming on then so i did learn the 3d and uh designed a few putters i wouldn't say i finished them off but later that after so i worked the summer and then some engineers kind of took what i started finished it off and actually became putters that we launched did you work here during the summers when you were at asu because you went as an undergrad you were in mechanical engineering at asu yeah so i started at oklahoma state ended up at asu okay and so were, were you working here over the summers uh, yeah to... yeah now what, what departments were you working in at that time was it in engineering or were you did you sort of early on dabble in all different kinds of phases of, of the business and of the operation? Uh, so mostly engineering. I did one, probably two summers with Karsten as his assistant. That so must have been fun. That was that was a blast. That's probably where I learned the most. That was uh, I bet. following him around, got to travel with him. He mm-hmm. did do some trips that I didn't go on, so then I'd kind of go back to engineering, did a little bit in repair and the production side mm-hmm. of things. Um, but learned a ton from him, just kind of walking the campus, uh, just really interesting how he ran the company, kind of looking into how it runs now. And I, I don't recall him really ever having any like scheduled meetings. And that's what I'm just trying to figure out. How do I get these meetings off my calendar? Yeah. Somehow he figured it out. Um, and he would just kind of walk around. He, so he'd <laughs> ha- yeah, he'd have the occasional meeting, I think. But most of his stuff, he came in that day, found something that was going wrong. And we spent the whole day deep diving into that. And by the end of the day, it was fixed because the day didn't end. Right. Until t- t- something was fixed. fixed. Yeah. So as, even as the company grew over time, does it, it, would it be appropriate to say that he kept it in his mind as a small business? I mean, he started it out of a garage. It was a home business. It starts with putters. Um, but as, as the scale increases, as the number of, you know, the campus gets bigger, did he still treat it in his mind like a, a small family business? That's a good question. I would say he would answer that he, it grew much bigger than he ever expected. So he realized it had turned into a big business. Um, But the way things ran, it was still, he was the decision maker on Mm -hmm. just about everything. And that's what I was shocked is, you know, we had so many people around the company working on all these things, but, you know, they really all turned to Karsten on what are we going to do here? What are we going to do there? And it was just interesting to me, you know, they were all like in engineering, there were all these degreed engineers and they were all they were waiting for direction from Karsten on you know the next driver you know how do we proceed how do we tackle well, that, this that's leadership I mean that's yeah. just another sort of form of leadership and respect to him because obviously the people who were designing ping clubs at that point knew this guy knew what he was talking about I mean he may not have had in some cases you know backgrounds on drivers or this or that but I would imagine that everybody deferred because they knew the guy had had made clubs right I mean, yeah for sure so. Um, when when do you sort of officially become an employee if there was ever a time at, at paying? Uh, graduated in 1996 in like December and the way our uh, vacation used to work, you had to start before the end of the year. So my dad's like, you got you to gotta come in before, you know, we had a Christmas holiday. So I think I started. So you showed on up like for the Christmas party, December, basically. December nice. 22nd, I, I'm guessing, 
worked one day to get that day in so then I would actually get two weeks vacation like the following week or whatever or follow so, yeah following so year. So your dad couldn't swing two weeks vacation? I mean like get, No, now seriously? we now we actually get pretty clever and if we, you know, bring someone in, we we can actually offer a little more vacation wow. start and stuff like that, but but yeah, back in those days, it was everything was very senior. I would have thought based. there was more more perks to the job. I mean, come on, you've got the no, right I last name. No, I wasn't highly here. recruited or anything like that, so I didn't have covered parking. I didn't. Uh, so yeah, all back then, everything was seniority based. We've gone a little bit now where we can offer like covered parking and, and uh, which more which vacation. out here in July, covered parking is it's probably a, as coveted it's a big as it deal. gets. It's a yeah. Big deal. So what's the first club officially then after your one day? What's, what's the first club? Because you, you then started engineering, correct? So then, yeah, I, I started as an engineer, um, what's the first designing putters. What's, and what's the first putter that you really got your hands <sighs> Kind into? of the Isopure putter family. So our first insert putter was kind of my mm-hmm. first uh, project. And what was that like? If you look back on it now, how did you do with, with that project? Uh, so we did. It was very successful. We had uh, seen a downturn in our putter business. Um and that was, you know, we had some competitors come out there with insert putters at the mm-hmm. time. So that had a softer feel, softer sound. So this was our answer to that. And uh, it went over very well in the marketplace. Now, with that said, it's just comical. Uh, just the, I'll say, kind of the lack of testing we did compared to what we do now. That's what I was sort of getting to the is, ringers. is that. Oh, we learned everything on the fly. And I remember like going in at 4 a.m. the day we were first going to start cutting these on the milling machine. And I remember I get there at 4 a.m. like, hey, I'm ready to see these. And the guy's like, what are you doing here so early? We're not going to start cutting these till 8. He's like, we got to set them up and do all this and all that. And I'm like, okay, I'm really tired, but I'll I'm, just stay here. Can I be right back with a cup of coffee and sit here and look at this piece yeah, of metal that yeah. from four hours from now they're going to start But then, yeah, we too. learned on the – because we, we were cutting production parts. You know, now we do all these pilot runs, test samples, mm-hmm. do, run, do all these tests make sure we have it right before we go to production. But back then it was basically, we went straight from a design to a mold to running production parts and kind of learning on the fly. Hey, ever hear about the ex-football star who robbed a Brinks truck then tucked $400,000 under his arm like a football and escaped using an inner tube? No? Then you'll want to listen to season one of The Sneak, a podcast by For the Win and USA Today Sports. Here, take a quick listen to the man who actually pulled that off. In 2008, a former D1 football star pulled off a robbery so daring and so strange that it went viral worldwide. It was a perfect crime story. There was just one problem. It wasn't the real story of what happened. The Sneak is a new, serialized true crime podcast from For the Win and USA Today Sports. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or get it anywhere you get podcasts on Tuesday, January 14th. So I have this idea in my head that you can either tell me is is true or is not true, but every engineering department sort of almost seems to have a group of people that are working on stuff that is really theoretical and potentially is stuff that's going to be five, seven years down the line. Probably has a lot of things that will never come to fruition, never be implemented, but we just are trying to learn stuff. What does this do? What does that do? Is that the most fun job in engineering or are, are the guys who actually and the ladies who actually work on stuff that goes into pro shops and into green grass stores, is that the job that you want because you can actually see the product? <laughs> I think it depends who you ask because um, I would definitely have my pick. Um, mm-hmm. 
But I see guys and gals, you know, moving to different departments that I would be like, that doesn't sound more interesting to me, but mm-hmm. they do that. So Just the way their brain works, it's yeah. So we've, to them. yeah, we've got guys that have been doing design, um, and they go into manufacturing uh, engineering. So then now they're working on you know how do we build these things? How do we improve the quality? Mm-hmm. Um, which to me, I'm more about you know what's the next design going to be like. Yep, um, would probably be my pick of you know I like to design and actually see that product that I. I actually did out in the marketplace. Yep. Um, but we got guys, and we call it the innovation department, that are working on that stuff five years out. And, you know, their exact concepts probably never actually make it to the production floor. Mm-hmm. But they put a lot of, you know, they kind of, they, they measure themselves in how many, like, concepts get into products. How many that, patents yeah. that, that they have yeah. their name on or they have their... So was there ever a product that you worked on, and now that we're maybe separated out from it, you can be like, that should have been bigger. Like, there was something about this driver or this putter or iron or something that, that you were involved with where as you're making it you're like oh this is going to be really cool like this what we're doing here is going to uh, really help people and then for whatever reason they didn't get it or it didn't catch on the way that you thought it should have grant grant your enthusiasm for it yeah i mean i would actually say not product wise nothing's coming to me i feel actually like the marketplace is really good at identifying what product works and what doesn't mm-hmm. um you can fool them for a few months or whatever and, and spike some sales, but eventually they catch on. I would say what we've done in fitting, like with in-flight um, and in-flight motion, which was mm-hmm. a device that we just put on the shaft and yeah. three swings could uh, you know, fit you to the right shaft. I, I remember seeing that for the first time with the PGA show about four years ago or so now and being like, this is big. Yeah, so I, both those I was very excited about. Still, I'm very proud with the work we've done to that. Yep. Um but didn't take off in the marketplace. And I think both of them were just a little ahead of our time. Uh, we've seen kind of the launch monitor companies catch up and imply some of the stuff, apply some of the stuff that we had in in-flight to their software now. Yep. And it's uh, and part of it might be just fitting is more brand agnostic a lot of the times. I think a and, lot of people are looking for that. Yeah. I think that and the, so the when businesses... when we kind of say, this is ping, they think they're only going to see you're the gonna best get a favoritism to, towards cuz cuz you guys came out with a really clever putting device that was essentially a clamp that would go onto the shaft of a putter and then you would take your smartphone and yep. this is now going back probably more like 5 or 7 well, years. Well, that that one we still have. That one still lives on. Which which to me was amazing because it would show you the dynamics of your stroke. It would make recommendations about the general type of putter that you wanted, one that had a strong arc, a slight arc or a relatively straight back straight through motion. And it didn't know whether it was attached to a ping putter or not. So the consumer could buy that product, use the app, and learn about the quality of their stroke and measure improvement over time. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, it's you're creating a training aid. But at the same time, to be able to gather data, I mean, that part of the world of golf, in my mind, has really exploded over, say, the last three or four years. And I'll get into a little bit about what you're doing with Arcos in just a little bit. But the whole concept of data and analytics and its effect on building golf equipment is just, it seems like, you know, there's there's no reason not to employ that stuff if you have the data and you guys have been collecting it for a long time. Yeah, for sure. To me, the, you know, the quality of data could, it drives better product uh, and can drive better golf for, you mm-hmm. know, the golfer if they actually know the data and they can make adjustments to their swing or just to their game. I would say I've seen that where we used to on our range – one, we used to have basically people out there with uh, 
the construction gear. Every time a ball landed, they wouldn't plot the stick like down sur- there. Surveying, survey. yeah. And we would survey the distance to how far the shot went, how far right, left. Yep. And it was all uh, ping man, mechanical man based. And mm-hmm. then we actually put a sonar system onto the range. So when a ball landed, we had all these microphones out on the range that would triangulate wow. to where the ball landed. Based on the sound so we, waves that are created yeah, by the so moment of impact. so we could track that. Wow. Great system. Broke down quite a bit on us. You'd always have a microphone out. Could, and, would it work in the rain? No. Um, <laughs> and other stuff could set it off, like if there were loud noises and stuff like oh that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but then launch monitors came along yep. and really improved the data we could get. And then we got... That enabled us to do a whole lot more player testing because in the past you couldn't really, with the sonar you could kind of get player testing data, but it was hard because you didn't know where they were starting from as yeah, much. You had to input right. all that sort of thing. Yep. Uh, but with launch, now we've got spin, now we've got ball speed, we've got but all got that data. You've got everything, right. You've got everything. And I would say the one thing we don't have right now that we are looking to get is more you know, the difference between a range shot and then on-course data. Well, that's the next leap, on the right? Range, I mean, yeah. you, you've heard, you know, players for generations say that I can't get my range game, you know, to, to the first yeah. tee. And um, you've got a system here called Enzo, which is a very sophisticated system that tracks basically using super high-speed cameras. Um, a player as they swing and you can get all kinds of data. What was it like asking? I would imagine that probably came out of the R&D department wanting to get stuff. Who got to tear the check for that? And did, was that a fun request putting in? Because I would imagine that's not cheap. And hey, uh, we want to buy this. I can't even remember how much it costs. I, it's probably best that you not all remember. Come from the same place, so it, to me, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's always worried about whose budget it goes on, and I'm like, at the end of the day, it's it's all coming it's from the same bank account. <laughs> it's, it's ours, so I, yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter that much. Um, we've definitely spent more money on other things than that, but th- mm-hmm. that wasn't cheap. Uh, but you know, that one, we could definitely see the benefit into it right away. A lot of these other technologies, you, you, you well, don't know to, as much to, what to, you're going to get. To be able to capture these. that data, to me, that one, when I saw it a few years ago, was really interesting. And now I know that you bring players in. I just saw Victor Hovland was in here fairly recently. And you guys put his swing up on social media that was, that was taken there to be able to get, you know, that, if I'm not mistaken, that system was originally designed to track missiles or something like that. Am I mixing that up? It was... The, the uh, speed of those cameras. I've never heard that one. This sounds really cool, though. Right? It does. Well, <laughs> if I'm going to make something was, up, make uh, it sound cool. Yeah, it was done with Fujikura kind of started it. I remember they um, were the first ones who had it. Yeah, and, and so then we actually guys... worked with them to get it. And then mm-hmm. we've kind of taken what we got from them and added to it and kind of customized it for our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we are actually looking at like, some of the short. We can't do left-handed right now. Um, so we're looking at you know how, how can we broaden it. to. You realize you know, my son is left-handed, right? I've got a daughter that's left-handed too. <laughs> it's, uh, he's mad because he's not allowed to play shortstop or third base. I mean, he's 15, and and you know, it's just not, it's either pitching, first base, or he's in the outfield, which he's fine with. But uh, yeah, the left-handers always, always seem to get the short end of the stick. At some point after you were vice president of engineering, um, was there ever a time when you're sort of looking around, saying like, okay, like I see this path in front of me? At that point, you're, I'm guessing. Um, you're 43 now, 44, uh, 45, 45. We're both getting older. Um, was it just sort of become obvious, like what the next decade might be for you once you'd sort of reached that part? Because at that point you've worked your way up the food chain within the engineering department. You're building lots of clubs, things having a lot of success. Um, was, was there a point where you sort of, I don't want to get all existential on when you sort of sat back like, okay, this is it. I can sort of see how this is maybe going to work out for me and how it's going to work out for the company. 
Um, boy, like looking ten years out, I I would never say I've had extreme confidence on anything that far out. I, stuff just changes so quick. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely seen like to me, Turbulators was a, a great example where we got those tests in, and, and I'm like, we we never see that. You know, all, we've just picked up a mile and a half of clubhead speed like mm-hmm. for free, um, which you know translate to even more ball speed. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess I'm, so what, I'm me, really, like, what I'm really talking about is... those initial tests, and yep. to me, I'm like, yeah, this is a technology that's going to stay around. Um, it's not going to be a... Well, I'm, I was really sort of getting it at, at, for you personally. I mean, it, at some point, like, you, you had said that you always sort of knew that you would be involved in the business, and, you know, with your father at the point being the president of the company, there had to have been talks at some point around that's like, yeah, you know, at some point, I could see that you would maybe doing that. Had, had this talk of you at that point been... Or had been addressed that you might go to Japan. I mean, which is something I wanted to get into now. But almost uh, training you to and, and sort of grooming you, if you will. I, I, you're a person. You know, per- people shouldn't be groomed for yeah, anything like that. But I yes and no. I mean, so like uh, we talk, but I mean, we don't have a whole lot of long, in-depth conversations about the whole succession plan and, and, be, would it be and weird? things like that. Um, well, potentially it could happen and not be weird, but we make right. it weird. So <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> They're very short, succinct. I had actually proposed, so we were they, we were doing some succession planning and kind of basically we got tasked to present to uh, Doug Hawk and my predecessor and my dad. Yep. You know, kind of here, what's your plan for your future? And I did that, and in there I put, you know, I think it would be great to go to Japan. Anyway, I did that, and I didn't hear anything for like you know for like two years on it and really? kind of one family meeting we were having my dad said i think i need to go to japan now i kind of think there was a lot of tension between us back then he was just looking for a break mm-hmm. um and with with a positive side or whatever so but in to me it was a genius move on on his side to give me that break let me go learn yep um without kind of his c- consistent oversight or whatever so kinda. what's it like when you then tell your wife because you've got a growing family and just starting out at that point, like, hey, we're going to the other side of the world. And I don't know if either of you spoke the language at that point, but... Uh, oh, we still don't speak the language or whatever. Cu- culturally, a that's... A, I mean, you're, you're going to someplace that's, you know, is as far away as you're almost going to get from... I mean, there are a lot of conveniences and modern things, but Japan's a lot uh, different than Phoenix. Yeah, so, th- I mean, that conversation was was easy. We, we kind of knew, you know, we're in a family business. We're in Phoenix. We're not moving anywhere. Phoenix mm-hmm. is great. Um you know, have no problem spending the rest of my life here, but do you want to spend your whole life here? Mm-hmm. We saw it as a great opportunity to get several years outside of Phoenix. Uh, good chance for, we've got four kids, get the kids. Um, oh, just their like whole global Phoenix awareness and, just, and their yeah. sense of, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. What did they think about the idea? Uh, they were all excited. Yeah. So no one, no one really flinched at the idea or anything. Everyone was kind of all in. We actually moved over a uh, Christmas break. So mm-hmm. it was kind of in the middle of a school year, and it was... Did you have to get one day, we one, and one I, day I or something like that? I think for, within two months, we were actually gone. Did so. you have to get the one day in Pig in Japan to, to sort of qualify for the vacation plan or something? Or uh, just... You know what? No, I sh- it was the same deal at the end of the year. I showed up for the uh, company party. Actually, there it's different because now you're worried about taxes and stuff. Right. Um, so I didn't have any work. So I need to be clear on that because I don't want anybody going back. No, no, no. I didn't I work know. at all. But I um, <laughs> before the first of the year, but I did. They did have a company uh, like Christmas party that I went to, That's cool. and then it was 
kind of the right after the first year. So, so how is the Japanese market for golf different from the market here in the United States? Um, so it's uh, completely different and really similar in a lot of ways. So well, that I, clears I mean, it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that that's the tricky thing. I would say for it's just what you know finding a strategy that worked for us. I would say okay. we were going down a path of we were. We were trying to act like we were Japanese over there, and and I I think the consumer just saw through it that we weren't. You know, we were interesting at that point. I think we'd been over there for about six years doing it as our own. In the past, it had all been distributors, mm-hmm. um, and I think they just kind of saw through it that hey, you guys aren't really. You know, we were doing gold product and stuff like that, and they were just kind of like you guys and you don't get really it Japanese, and we were charging you know a, a whole lot for it. And so when I got there, I kind of said, you know what? I think we need to kind of go to our roots. We're an American company, mm-hmm. uh, but we need to speak Japanese. So we need to like market in their language, and you know, you market their tour players mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So so they get us. But at the end of the day, they understand we're an American brand that has success all around the world, and we're here in the Japan market. So. I would guess that the timing was just right on that. Obviously, you're trying to match up your marketing and the way that you're going to present the company to that market in the appropriate way. But for a while, I think in the U.S., people who were really into golf equipment almost looked at Japanese stuff as being made to a higher quality or made to a really exacting standard. And not that the American stuff wasn't really good, but they they held the Japanese stuff in the Asian market in, in a different light. And starting, I would argue, just under a decade ago, maybe things flipped around where the American product seemed to have more innovation to it, uh, a little bit more technology was put into the American product. And if you then present that, um, speaking Japanese as an American company, it seems like that's the perfect recipe. Now, all of a sudden, you're able to do that if the Japanese consumer is willing to buy American product. Is that fairly accurate? Or was the timing uh, yeah, good in I that think, way? Yeah, I mean, yeah. The t- uh, apparently, the timing has worked out well because we, we have done very well in Japan for the mm-hmm. last five, six years, um, just with steady growth and continuing to gain market share. Uh, but yeah, I think that it does kind of ebb and flow where, you know, there's times where, I mean, there are people that see the Japan product is superior and mm-hmm. the U S product is superior. Um, I think the ping product's superior, but <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just the right opinion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it, and to me, it's just kind of balancing that. I would say, you know, Japanese market super focused on the cosmetic quality of the yes. product. So they're, yes. you know, they get a club and they hold it up right up to their head. Really inspect and it. And inspect that for any blemishes. Uh, American customer, you know, kind of grabs it by the grip, takes a few waggles at it. So they're looking at it from four or five feet away yeah. and seeing what that club looks like to them. Mm-hmm. So just little things like that are different. And so obviously in Japan, you see a huge focus on the cosmetic quality. Um, in the U.S., it's more about, you know, what's it swing like, what does it feel like, and, and things like that. It's interesting. So with the, the Olympics going to Japan in August, what will that mean for the Japanese golf market and golf in Japan? Um, good question. Um, I think, it, you know, the J- Japan has a very strong golf market. Well, it's an established market. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's so been around for it, over 100 so years. So I, I think uh, they'll get good uh, – well, one good participation at it. I think all the players will want to play it in this year. Yeah, I think so, too. I think uh, they'll get good attendance to people, you know, coming out and watching mm-hmm. the golf tournament. Uh, we've got a couple uh, girls on the Japan LPGA that I'm um, pretty confident they will represent the Japan team, and they, they're they really good. So I'm really excited to see what they do over there. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done really well this year. Uh, Ai Suzuki won the money list. Uh, Shibuno won the... 
uh, stat title and won the British Open this year. So we've had some great success over there, and mm-hmm. they have some really big fans. So I think for us, the Olympics is going to be really big mm-hmm. with the, you know, in the Japan market with those players representing Japan. You're being really generous with your time, and I don't want to take too much of it. So there's really two more topics that I'd like to bring up with you. The first is that we're expecting the USG and the RNA to release their findings on their big distance report. Every year we get the, the annual report that we sort of know about, which is – basically just a, a calling of all the data, and, and this is the driving distance average on the PGA Tour and the European Tour and the ladies' European Tour, et cetera. Um, that one we all know about. But we're still waiting for the report to come out that is basically going to show what the USGA and the RNA have been collecting data on. They spent a good part of 2018-19 uh, collecting data from all different sources, manufacturers, um, golf course architects, golf course operators, et cetera, trying to find out the effective distance. Um we don't know, obviously, what they're going to say, but um, and I'm not going to ask you. What, did, did Ping sort of have a say? Did you guys write a letter? Did anybody <laughs> present stuff? I mean, I would imagine that you've got an important voice in this conversation. What what did Ping have to say? Yeah, I mean, over the years, we we've written a lot of letters. I, I would say our our you know kind of standard stance is you know the laws of physics are really good at kind of dictating mm-hmm. how far the ball should go. Um, kind of the requirements they put on equipment have really just added a lot of uh, cost and complexity to golf equipment today because they're kind of these just arbitrary levels of you know things like a ct measurement that mm-hmm. are uh just get tricky to monitor and then they've they've kind of changed the rules on you know whether now they if the ct raises over time it used to be you couldn't play a club out of conformance right now they're deeming that club broken um so to me, there's a lot there. I think at the crux of the issue is we've got some really good golfers that spend an inordinate amount of time working on swing speed, working on hitting the ball farther, and they mm-hmm. do hit the ball quite a bit farther, much further than the average golfer. Sure. I think the average golfer out there, you know, they're doing everything they can to gain a couple yards, and they're not going out shooting under par every time they play. Uh, so the game has not gotten too easy. It has not gotten too short for the for you know 99 percent of the golfers. Uh, for that top, you know, to me, it's like saying the runners are running too fast because they keep breaking all the world records. It's just the way kind of... There's this sort of evolutionary process yeah, people, that, that happens throughout sport. And whether it's runners, as you mentioned, you know, there was, you know, people are coming close to, to the two-hour marathon. I know that one was actually done with a lot of assistance. Yeah. Um, the way that basketball, for example, is played, um, you know, you get guys like Steph Curry hitting more three-pointers than Larry Bird would have attempted in a season, you know, by a lot, you know, yeah. 30 years ago. Football, there's analytics in that. that the, game, the games are just played differently. The yeah, athletes are I, different. That's a big point. Like, the new stats that are available um, really kind of opened golfers' eyes to how important yeah. distance is, where, yep. you know, it used to be everything's about putting or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, putting's still important. But really, it showed how distance off the tee is a big advantage to golfers. Ball striking travels. I mean, I've talked to a lot of players and I've talked to a lot of coaches about this. And, you know, guys, anybody can have a hot week of a putter. But if you're somebody whose average distance off the tee is, say, 285, you're not going to show up and start hitting at 320 one week and then go back to 285. It's just not how the game works and not how the human body works. Um, And that maybe for a while we undervalued – quality ball striking and big hitting. To, to me, what's interesting is, there is it's, it's deemed to be really virtuous and good to be an outstanding putter. And that we as a sport, or at least the governing bodies, give me the impression that they like it when people are really good at putting, but they don't give 
the same virtuousness or the same level of respect to people who can drive the ball at the most elite levels. So when Jordan Spieth or Jason Day or some of these guys putt lights out and they have, you know, 0.7, 0.8, 0.9 strokes gain putting. So they're really, really, you know, they're holding everything. That's deemed to be or seems to be a better thing. We can reward that and we're happy with that more than, oh, wow, Tony Finau gets 0.9 with driving distance. It's almost like, well, Tony Finau is six foot five. The guy's made out of rubber bands. It's not a fair <laughs> fight, which to me is, it's, wh- why do we have this bias? I, I don't I get that part. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I, to me, yeah, I don't know because the guys that hit it far, it's not like, they you know how hard it that. is to control yeah. the club head speed? I mean, we, yeah. we do, but I think keep it's, it on the planet when you're hitting it that when far. When you're swinging at 123, 124 miles an hour to be able to align the club face sort of towards the fairway on a plane that will make it go into the fairway, ideally, that's really hard. And yeah. I think that there's an underappreciation for what that is. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in you know, the, the headquarters of a golf equipment manufacturer. I, I've said this one and written it numerous times. I just think it's an underappreciated skill. Um What's going to be coming out new for paying golf in 2020? Now that we're here, talk to me a little bit about some of the things, the products that people should be looking out for. What are going to be the hot things from, from paying in 2020? Uh, so to kick off the year, we've got two new product lines. So we have our Hepler putter line. It's a solid face putter. Um, so kind of to complement the Sigma 2 putters that we have right now that have mm-hmm. an insert, very soft uh, face on those. So the Hepler line has a solid face, kind of a two-tone copper and black look so very attractive putters mm-hmm. oh i don't even remember eight or nine different models in there so we've got all sorts of different stroke types in there uh we've got the adjustable length in there so all these putters can be fit to any individual so really good performing putter line and we also have our new g710 iron mm-hmm. uh, it's a hollow body super forgiving iron so mm-hmm. a distance iron uh very forgiving uh going to be really good uh for probably uh a mid to higher handicap, slower swing speed that's looking to maximize some distance with their irons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, have more seven irons hitting in rather than five irons. Sounds so good. So it's good for that. And then I'm excited. These also will have a Arcos as standard on them in the grip. So the consumers will get an opportunity to test that out and then sign up for the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I taught the next generation stats. It's really helped my golf game. I in a little over a year in Arcos and just seen huge improvements in my handicap and my scoring ability just by being able to go back and look at historical data, where am I missing it? things, yeah, it's, um, it's huge. So I was able to refit myself, kind of realized that I didn't, you know, I was pulling all my irons. Um, so I was able to refit my irons to get me lining up straight mm-hmm. and then just finding gaps in my distances. So I really think that's going to be a big value to the consumers is being able to see that data and also help us design better products for them in the future. For, for people who may not be 100% aware, Arcos is a system that essentially links each one of your golf clubs, whether it's a screw-in tab or sometimes they have the technology built into the grips. It will wirelessly connect to your smartphone. There are other ways that you can sort of link it up. And the system can detect when you're hitting each of your shots and then using the GPS system, tell and sort of superimpose Basically, think of putting a, a thumbnail print in at the T of every hole that you're playing. I think they've got 40,000 uh, different um, courses that are all mapped up using basically Google Maps. And um, it can, plays a game of connect the dots. And what's really interesting mm-hmm. is all of a sudden it can take that data and tell you that not only did you hit you know eight fairways out of 14, it can tell you your tendency is to miss left on approach shots, that your tendency is to come up short. 
that your most consistent clubs, for example, are whatever they are, that your average distance with each of your clubs, which is hugely important. I think that people who use this all of a sudden become aware that they have major gaps in their setups, whether there's a gap between their pitching wedge and their, you know, that may come with their iron set or the, and their next wedge, if it's a gap wedge or whatever, or at the top of their bag, if they carry one fairway wood and then they go into a hybrid that the gap can be 30 or 40 yards sometimes at the elite levels. Um, just the awareness that this gives you, it, it changes the way that you, yeah. you, you play golf. Basically it just, you become a so much smarter and make better decisions on the yeah. golf course. The way I, it's uh, basically shot link for the average guy. Yeah. So right now shot, yeah. shot links, not on corn Ferry, It's not on the LPGA. It's only on the PGA tour in the U S and those guys use it heavily. A lot of them have stat guys that are yeah. analyzing their data. Yeah. And this Arcos brings that to everybody. Um, so to me, what's nice is it not only look, gives you like the old school stats, like greens and regulation. Yep. You might think you're a horrible putter because you had three putts that three three putts that round, but it'll actually tell you no. It was just because you were hitting the ball. To your 50 ball striking puts you in a position time. where so your you, putting it's couldn't actually ex- your yeah. approach. Yeah. Or your, even your chipping is bad. Yep. And you've just put yourself in positions where even tour players three putt from. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to be 70 feet away with your first putt, there's a better than, you know, and you're a 15 yeah. handicap player, you're going to three putt. And yeah. if you don't, you probably just did something really, really well. Yeah. So congrats. I know you've got to run here. I appreciate you giving me so much time. John, thanks very much. Thank you very much, David.